Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thanks for joining us. This is Ingrid, your host of History, Culture, Trauma. I am excited to have our guest today um, because they are a, a team member with Paces Connection. So we're going to have a great conversation. But really, we want to focus today on continuing this conversation that we've had this month on going back to school and and really being able to address the high levels of stress and trauma that that is happening in our school system in America currently um, that has been exasperated by a couple of things. First, COVID, um, the pandemic has definitely um, really highlighted already existing issues within our school system. And then the racial reckoning of 2020 as well that uh, brought back to focus how schools have traditionally under-resourced and underserved um, children of color, especially black um, black children. And so um, we wanted to have a conversation here today, and I'm thankful to have my co-host, Matthew Portell, Director of Communities with Paces, to uh, further this conversation. How are you doing, Matthew? I'm doing well, and welcome back. Uh, Ingrid, you, I was, I was solo last week by myself and it was, uh, had a great conversation and as excited as I was last week, um, to talk, uh, to the, the, uh, school nurse, Robin Kogan, I am equally excited, uh, to talk to a colleague of mine and I would say friend, um, uh, Laura Kane, um, but Laura, <laughs> let me tell you, uh, she is an educational consultant for PACES. Um, and I've learned a lot from her, even in, at when I was served as a principal. But she has a very deep understanding and uh, the importance of school and community drivers for change. She is an experienced educator and consultant who speaks nationally on implementing trauma-informed practices in schools and building holistic trauma-responsive systems. She's bringing over two decades of experience, local, state, and national level, including developing programs, integrating trauma-informed practices into community schools in L.A., she worked for the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction as the state homeless coordinator and practiced her first love, teaching at-risk youth. That's just a small little fraction of your experience, Lara. And so welcome to uh, welcome to our podcast. You've ne- you know, I know you listen to this every week, but we're really <laughs> glad you're here. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for asking me to be your guest. Absolutely. And, and we're, let's jump into the conversation. So um, we always ask all of our guests, um, what was the impact of the ACE study on you when you first heard it? And what was the point of entry like for you when you learned about ACEs? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll back up a little bit and share that not only was I a teacher in an alternative high school, I was a student in an alternative high school myself. And so that experience it was my school was very much a trauma-informed school before it was a thing right it was it was uh wraparound support love you know just a lot of um really great systems in place that we're trying to replicate nationally um, now and i wanted to become a teacher like my teachers that really saved me and i became a teacher in an alternative high school um I, i'm grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and then I moved to um, 
Western Washington, and I was a teacher in an alternative high school in a, in a rural, very rural, high poverty area that served three counties. And my students um, were often um, pushed out, dropped out, adjudicated teen parents, you know, over age, under credit, you name it, right? All sorts of reasons that they weren't going to be successful um, at the regular school. And I did that and and really was had an opportunity to utilize a lot of those same practices that I experienced as a student with my own kids, my own students. And I was a trauma-informed teacher. I just didn't know it, right? I didn't have that in reflection when I look backwards. So fast forward to 2009, I'm working at um, the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction. I was on their Title I school improvement team and the, and the state homeless McKinney Vento coordinator. And we had the opportunity to go to like a brown bag lunch and learn, you know, just for anyone who wanted to drop in. And it was our statewide, you know, social work consultant. And he was doing an info session on ACEs and trauma. And so I'm just sitting back there, you know, eating my lunch, like this sounds interesting. And it completely blew my mind and transformed my thinking because when I had a, you know, all of my own experience, my own ACEs, my own trauma, you know, what my friends went through, what my students went through, how I was as a teacher, all of it really uh, felt validated. And I had a much better understanding, not only of the framework and having a place to put some intuitive knowledge. Like it was, you know, I felt like, oh, wow, a lot of things that we did were really right on, but there, I felt like I had a whole new language around science as well. And that was what really made um, a big difference. It wasn't just the hippie dippy stuff like, oh, you're just one of those teachers that's good with kids and, you know, sure kids love you or whatever. We were really doing things that matched what the science was saying were the correct things to do for kids that had experienced high levels of adversity. So I think just for so many ways, like it just really changed my approach going forward. I started integrating it into all of the professional development that I did around the state. Anytime I worked with teachers, anytime, you know, it just really um, in heavily influenced uh, my life since then, um, including when I moved to Los Angeles um, and my work here. Yeah, I think when we talk with people about um, the ACEs studies, so many say very similar things around, you know, now I have a, a language to use. So I think that's one reason why the study is so impactful when you first hear about it, because it's it's really tied to our intuition. It's kind of something that we already know. And then now we have the science behind it that really helps us to be able to first kind of bring people on board. So, you know, um, we haven't always been so, uh, you know, a, a bunch of science deniers as we are now, but, you know, <laughs> traditionally being able to have uh, the science behind um, what we already know intuitively is, is, is a great practice. So, um, that really stood out to me when you were talking about that. And that also was something that I experienced when I first heard about the ACEs study. So thanks for sharing that. And, and you know, for our audience, you know, what are trauma-informed schools? What makes trauma-informed schools different from other schools? And, or why do we need trauma-informed practices in schools? One of the things that I felt very strongly when I left high school was that what I had experienced, the transformation that I had had gone through the the things that really worked to turn my life around, and the practices of the school, I 
was well aware that they were good for everybody, not just us kids who were like the knuckleheads, right? That I, I was just so clear to me that the things that worked for us were actually really good teaching practices that worked for everyone. And the way that the school approached, uh, you know, this whole child approach and, and meeting our basic needs, these things were good for everybody. And so for me, when I talk about what is a trauma-informed school, um, and, and I know, you know, we've heard this language from, from a lot of folks, it's a way of being. It's who we become. It's not a thing we do. There's no checklist. There's no curriculum. There's no prescriptive approach. It is really a shift in your paradigm, in your mindset of how we look at what is the purpose of school? Why are we here? What are we here for? What do, how do we treat each other? What does it mean to be a human being in this ecosystem we call school? Why, you know, all of these things, it really changes your lens. And so, yes, I can give examples of trauma-informed practices, what, th what things that I see when I go to a school and they're working on their trauma-informed journey, or, you know, there's things that we know that match the science of making sure we have belonging and safety. And, you know, the, the six principles from SAMHSA are a great framework, but really it is a whole school transformation. And I think from my point of view, every single school, regardless of where you are, what your zip code is, urban, rural, size, age level, doesn't matter. This is the approach that we all need to be moving towards because all of our, the history of education, the science behind learning, and the research of what works backs up this shift for everybody, not just kids who've experienced trauma. Yeah, and I think this is a unique conversation with the right <laughs> you know, people at the table, because we have all um, engaged in this work of trauma-informed um, practices in school settings, the three of us. Mm -hmm. And I know that um, kind of in my work, which has kind of the, the DEI lens to it as well, that, you know, our schools are having a, a hard time right now, um, probably one of the, um, you know, it's really a kind of a crossroads for our public schools in so many different ways. So we have um, clearly uh, long lasting disparities in our educational outcomes based yes. on race, based on geography. So suburban versus rural versus urban schools. Um, and definitely, you know, even along the lines of gender, we have kind of these long lasting disparities. Um, this is something that we've already known, but now it is extremely relevant kind of as we are doing, going through a process of a racial reckoning in this country, um, along with, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, the fits that parents are having on the floors of school board meetings around critical race theory. And then when we add on this layer of two things, workplace stress for mm -hmm. teachers and administrators and kind of this great resignation that is going on in school systems where there's a kind of a mass exodus out of the school system due to, you know, the issues that we're talking about um, in addition to, you know, the stress of living in a post COVID era, that's a lot going on. So mm -hmm. um, what is, what is, you know, your thoughts on all of these things? And I know that you've talked a little bit about um, kind of, the need for people to be more active and more aggressive in the way that we are addressing these issues. So um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I have a lot. Um, I am an eternal optimist. It's 
usually pretty annoying to most people who know me. Um, and for me, when COVID hit, I because of my experience, my own personal experience in school, my experience as a teacher, my experience doing school improvement work, I knew that what we had, were doing wasn't working for a lot of kids and families already. School systems were traumatizing to families and communities across the country. And I felt like I kept yelling, like I was just screaming into the wind about, you know, high stakes testing and not involving the community and punitive discipline. And, you know, the discipline disparities, like you talked about, have been the same. We haven't moved the needle. They still show the same disproportionality between, you know, black and brown students and students with disabilities are the ones that suffer the most from exclusionary discipline. That hasn't changed, right? We weren't moving the things that we needed to move. Nothing was changing in the system. I felt wasn't working for most. And when COVID hit, I kind of saw this opening. There was two things that happened. One was an empathy window. We were experiencing a collective trauma for the first time in this immediate generational history that people you know, were, were being reflective on. And people that may have not been open to the conversation before were like, oh, okay, maybe we need to change how we're approaching. You know, we're all grieving. We're all experiencing trauma. We're all suffering this um, collective experience together. <clears throat> and we need to change how we approach things for all of us. Like you said, staff, you know, burnout, being able to regulate ourselves, being able to grieve, being able to support each other. And the other thing that I saw happen was immediately in the first couple of weeks of the shutdown, we got rid of high stakes testing. We got rid of school schedules, which I told were impossible to change. We got rid of grading practices, which I was always told was impossible to change, right? All of a sudden we were flexing because we were forced to flex. And I think it really opened up people's thinking to the possibility that we could do things differently than we had before. And so for me, I was like, okay, this is maybe this opportunity. I don't want to lose this, this experiment with, with changing the way we do things. So that's kind of one approach to it, right? I'm hopeful that we've experienced this together and that we can do better now that we know better. I also see, because people are coming back dysregulated collectively, right? Our nervous systems are all hijacked, adults and kids. We saw this last year. People came back kind of feral, right? They were just all over the place. There was a lot of more fighting. There was just a lot. And that's because of our nervous systems, like what we know about regulation, right? We know that everyone was coming back already with their nervous systems hijacked. They were fight, flight, freeze, reactive, right? Not in a place where they can be reflective and responsive and calm and empathetic and curious and all the things that we need for, you know, our cognitive thinking brains, uh, prefrontal lobe to be online. We need to be open to these things. And so we almost saw almost a, a small backlash last year, I think, right? That people came back and it was chaos and people were burnt out and it wasn't, we weren't able to like slow. We tried to jump back to normal and normal wasn't working already, right? But we were like, okay, we got to get back to normal. And we skipped over the part where we had to take three months to heal collectively, you know, and 
we saw the effects of that. And so then people were like, well, that didn't work. We're going to go back to punitive discipline, you know, and now we're, you know, now we're, we're talking about um, race and history, like the true history, right. That we know is omitted from most textbooks and most teaching. Um, And we're now there's kind of a, a, we're facing this, this, backslide and I and this is what scares me but I also what fires me up right because we see I mean you guys know right you're in Tennessee um there is there are legislative you know and policy decisions being made by a minority who are very loud and very crafty and good at using grassroots organizing to change policies practices and laws that affect all of us but the majority if polls are correct, right, and the most in place, most places I go, majority does not agree with these changes. And so I think I had mentioned this to you guys earlier, right, that the, the bumper sticker from the 70s, like, think globally, act locally. We need to remember and be loud about how we get involved locally and examine, you know, school board, county seats, you know, these things are how changes are being made, not just, you know, running for president, but the very small local level. How do we know what our school discipline data looks like? Do you know what, you know, your local schools, is there disproportionality? Why is that there? It's all public data. You can access any of that. So looking at your own school, your own neighborhood, your own school board, how can we get our voices heard? How can we, as someone said it, you know, I was at the National Community School Conference here in Los Angeles. And the message really was like, lead with love, but fight like hell. Like we can't be quiet. We can't afford to, or we're going to lose the soul of our education system. We're at it where I feel like we're close to a tipping point and we really need to um, be active because I mean, that's part of why teachers are leaving, right? Why administrators are burning out. We need to do something. Uh, a lot of things, a lot of local things, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what it's going to take, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Ooh, do I have a lot? <laughs> right? And I, I know that most people that listen have constantly hear me referring to my experience in public ed and so much what you say resonates with me. And right before we, we got on the podcast, you know, we were talking, I just met with my brand new elected school board member for my county that I live in. And it was eye-opening for both of us, to be quite honest, because I shared the book, What Happened to You with him, um, as I do just about anybody that I meet in that realm as a door-opening opportunity to have a conversation. But I asked those same questions that you just mentioned. What is the the disproportionality? What is the behavior data? What is, and, and there was no answer, right? Because what we're told is academics, academics, academics. Um, and then I've made the grave mistake of being involved in parent Facebook groups for the county. Um, and I will tell you that fight like hell is really hard uh, when there's things that are brought up and you bring science to the table or you bring li- lived experience to the table and it's dismissed because of the political push that you just mentioned. So I think what does fight like hell mean when we right. say that? Because I think all educators, we're we're in the space. I just saw what yep. happened in Ohio. 
Um, I see what's happening and fight like hell. What I hear when, when I hear you say that doesn't mean fight like hell for us only it's fight like hell for our system and the kids and the communities and all involved, not just for ourselves. Yes. Yes. That collective action that, Mm -hmm. that the conservative is, you know, sectors are using so well. They are using the tools that were really effective for the civil rights movement, right? They were really effective for movements in the 60s and 70s. They are using the same playbook and we have forgotten. And we need to come together collectively because you're right. I mean, that's exactly what I mean. This is for the whole system that we need to make sure that our kids have a space where they feel like they belong, like they're loved, where they can be their authentic selves, where we're not... um, you know, passing anti-gay, anti-trans laws, where we're not banning conversations around the true history of our country and calling it critical race theory, which is not true. But, you know, that's a whole nother topic, right? But it's like, we have to stand in the gap there and make sure that that doesn't continue across the country. Yeah, we've made a lot of gains Um, when it comes to public schools, but um, just listening to um, really kind of where we are now, especially when it comes to what you brought up around critical race theory, because we had this conversation uh, last year when we did an event, uh, me and you, around um, critical race theory. and, And I was talking to our audience and said that, you know, those who are against trauma-informed practices in schools and also equity in schools are very organized. They yes. they have a very clear message and they have very determined and, um, you know, focused leaders. And, and, and how are we um, organizing? How are we um, doing the same things? And it's, and there is not a very clear, um, you know, organized effort on our end. Um, and when I say our, I mean those who are interested in ensuring that we have this trauma-informed space for children, not just some children, but all children, and and right. um, being very intentional and clear about um, our efforts. And a lot of this has to do with the way that our society is 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 shaped. And so, you know, our schools are a microcosm of our larger society. And so the issues that are present in our society are present in our schools and on, on by design. So when we're talking about um, this issue around critical race theory, we have to understand the history of schools in general, which is clearly um, schools were meant to educate white male children um, with the sole purpose of them going into very, you know, clear fields and, um, and everyone else was considered, um, there was no need to educate them. There was no need to educate girls. There was no need to educate children of color um, because uh, education in this country has its roots in elitism. And 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 our roots in this country are very white male focused. And so we often talk about our system as being flawed. And I like to bring up the fact that it is working exactly the way that it's supposed to work and that our efforts are really around transforming it. Um, I think we did have an opportunity to transform our school system with COVID just 
it it came about and people said, oh, we are able to make these changes. But now the backlash is so strong. Um, what is the next steps? How can we get us out of this uh, current place where we have such polarization and division um, and and kind of, you know, what does it look like to have a, a school system that actually works for everyone? Yeah, oh, I think about this stuff a lot, right? Um, that's a big question. And I think I think one of the things that, that really struck me, like you said, the system was designed exactly intentionally to get the outcomes that we're getting. And I think we need to really re-examine our own why. What is our North Star? What is the purpose of school? We know that what businesses need, what they want as the outcome, we're not providing. Schools are stuck in a very old modality. The schedules that we have, the la- you know, the silos of disciplines, all of that is very old world. And when we look at what 21st century needs are for the output, right, from the system, we need kids who can think critically, problem solve, work in groups, think holistically, get along with others, you know, have high social emotional IQs, EQs, right? These are the things that that businesses say they need from us as educators. Yes, academics, but a specific set of skills that our schools are not designed at all to produce, most schools, right? We are still stuck in very distinct disciplines that are siloed, you know, not prioritizing creativity, art, thinking, you know, the humanities, that's not as important or valued um, anymore. And also how we work together, how we belong, how we include our demographics in this country are shifting. We need to be able, you know, that is this becoming younger and not as white. And, you know, we, we need to be able to be able to work together very comfortably. And so I think re-examining our purpose, our purpose is not what it was when schools, you know, like you said, from the beginning, a very elitist, you know, purpose of it and that excluded so many people. So we need to re-examine our, our collective why and there's a lot of ways to do that. And after the break, which I know is coming up soon, we can talk about community schools, collective visioning, what this looks like at the community level, because I think that is really the only place to um, to really get that started. But I think that's the, that's the first step. And then we can figure out what it looks like in the practice. And we can talk about things that, you know, both Matthew and I, and I know you too, Ingrid, have seen examples of, of when it's working well. So we can give lots of examples of what it looks like, but I think the first step is to really talk about um, about how we go about re- reimagining and re-envisioning collectively what is the purpose of school. Yeah, that is exactly it. How do we reimagine um, the purpose of school? What is our why? And and then be able to take a critical look at you know, those those key things that we need. So like you said, the critical thinking, how do we facilitate critical thinking in children? 
obviously the be the ability to work well together, um, which is uh, greatly impacted by our, kind of our, our racial divisions. Right? It's 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 hard to um, work well together if we're still a racist country as we become even more multiracial in 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 our in our makeup. And so I think you're absolutely correct. We need to kind of uh, pull back and think through, you know, our our why and kind of how we envision our future as a country and how we accomplish that through schools. Um, So we're going to take a break and we'll come back and talk more with Laura Kane, our education consultant here with PACES. And we'll jump into kind of how what that fight looks like um, and what are the solutions. So we'll be back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcasts. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Okay, we are back with Laura Kane. We're talking about trauma-informed schools today. Uh, before the break, we really talked about kind of, you know, how we got to this current state of our public school system here in America and uh, how trauma-informed schools could potentially be a solution to many of the issues that we're seeing present day in our school system. One thing that came up um, when we were talking before was how our public schools 
were really um, built around supporting one type of family and one type of child. And so really um, kind of this focus on white male children and preparing them um, to go into specific fields. And that's kind of our origin in, in America of public schools. And as we move into present day, uh, first, we had to fight for integration of schools um, before um, our our understanding of integration of schools, um, which is uh, around race. We, you know, first we had to fight for girls to attend school and then we won the battle around um, uh, Hispanic and Latino children um, attending schools in the 40s. Then eventually we got to the 50s and 60s where we have um, African-American children being able to attend schools and desegregate. And so um, when we have this uh, real, I guess, integration, and I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far to say that our schools are integrated, but I guess legally on paper, (laughs) this integration of schools, there's been a lot of um, challenges around that. And as we have these kind of narratives in in school settings that um, integration is a good thing. Uh, However, there's plenty of research and statistics that show that um, us going through this process of civil rights movement has not actually benefited um, Black children and children of color. And so, um, you know, when it comes to the school setting, why do some students struggle and why are others excelling? And um, and this is kind of the discussion that's really been brewing with this critical race theory issue. And then, of course, our racial reckoning and how we are how we've gotten here. So what are your thoughts on that before we move into kind of what the solutions are? Wow, Um, (laughs) that's a lot. I think. Like you said, our why I mean, why some kids thrive and why some kids struggle there's a lot of factors that go into that. But like you said, our schools are not actually integrated because our neighborhoods aren't, right? We're still segregated because of redlining and historical racism. We're still segregated in our cities and by zip code and by income. And our schools are still funded by the property taxes that are you know, related to the zip codes that attend the school. And th- those inequities are structural that still affect so much of the outcomes that we're experiencing, right? Because so in Los Angeles, we might have a school with 2000 kids that has a social worker, a psychiatric social worker, two days a week. Well, if you experience a crisis three days of those, you know, that week, you know, well, oh well, right? And even if, even if they happen to be there, there's, that's the person, the support personnel that we need to support the health and wellness of everybody in the school is just not there. Funding is not there. Funding is inequitable, right? It's You can still see the disparities across zip codes in a city like Los Angeles, right? You see where kids are doing well, you know, well academically, right? Everybody's, there's, everyone's struggling socially, emotionally, I think, uh, but the resources make a difference. And this idea around behavior and the school to prison pipeline and our implicit bias, our understanding of behavior and what's acceptable behavior and what we understand about nervous systems and regulation and our own regulation, all of this feeds directly into 
you know, if, if you don't have a restorative discipline system set up in your school and you're still using rigid discipline matrices and punitive discipline approaches and exclusionary discipline approaches, those are going to absolutely reflect disproportionate numbers like they do in almost every, you know, every school. And so we really need to fundamentally change how we approach discipline, how we understand behavior and communication, right? The the community, the feeling of being othered, of not belonging, of being excluded, right? This doesn't just feel bad. <laughs> like we can say, well, that feels bad. This affects our brains, our nervous systems, our ability to learn, our ability to function, our ability to feel safe. And for people to learn, this isn't just what I love about the science, right? It's not just me saying, I know my kids need to be safe and feel like they are loved and have belonging to learn it's actually backed up by science, right? Dr. Bruce Perry will tell you that lots of people will tell you that there's lots of ways to show for our frontal lobe, our critical thinking, our abstract thought, our reflectivity, our ability to what we call learn academic information, new information, and to be reflective and critical about that. Our frontal cortex has to be open and available. And if we don't feel safe, and if we don't feel like we belong, and if we don't feel loved and like we're in a community, that isn't going to happen. So this focus on success and academic success, right? Yes, absolutely. I was a teacher. I was in schools. We are there to produce good academic outcomes for everybody. But if we're only producing good ac academic outcomes for a few, and we're not paying attention to 30% that aren't successful, I'm just, you know, using a, a number, right? But and we're saying, well, okay, those 30% aren't doing well, but 70% are doing great. That's not acceptable. And so much of that has to do with how we understand the science of learning. And that's why I keep saying like the research, the science, it's there about how we need to do things differently, what works and produces the kind of workers or, you know, adults that our society and democracy require. I mean, it's such a huge part of being a functional democracy is to have citizens that understand the real history of our, you know, the complete, I should say, the complete history of our country, right? And how to participate as citizens and how to use their voice. That is, again, something that is um, going away, I think. And I, I was gonna, I was gonna speak to that too because I, I was at a, my son's track meet and I walked in front of a high school and it, it named the high school, and under it it said college and career ready, which is something that is used in education all the time, and it, it made me pause for a minute and I thought, why can't we have schools that are are producing people who are strongly academically advanced, but understand their own well-being and the need of their taking care of their self, right? Mm -hmm. Because what we have turned is what you just said. We are now a machine that is trying to feed the system of workers so that the system can continue. It's the reason why I don't understand why my child comes home with four hours, and this is by no means a gripe session. It's just my experience. Four hours of homework every night. I'm thinking, what are we drilling into the children if they go to school, they, they're at school all day, and then they come home and they have to work four hours. Why? And then I thought, this is what we're trained and taught to do mm -hmm. culturally. We have to work, 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 and you have to work, work, work. 
And I thought, man, this is so deep, right? And so I, I think if we step back and we look at historical context and why schools were developed and why we sat in rows and why it was only for a select few, I mean, we're still dealing with a lot of that because a lot hasn't changed. But I feel that things can change. If, it, if I didn't feel that it could change, <laughs> I wouldn't have done what I did and I wouldn't be doing what I do. So what do you feel and what do you see as the change that we're going to see and the change that needs to happen in education based in the trauma-informed field? Yeah, I mean, that's, and, and like I said, you know, I, I am the eternal optimist. I, I tell people I am education's biggest cheerleader. I love, I'm such a school nerd. I love schools. I love being in schools. I love teachers. I love everything about education. It's what I spend my life thinking about, talking about, writing about, working on, right? It's, it's a huge part of who I am and, and why I do what I do. But that doesn't mean I'm also not education's most critical friend, <laughs> right? It, it has to change, but I believe strongly, like you said, that it can. And for me, there's not one way to do this. And I'm not suggesting that community schools are the only solution at all. I'm using them as an example. So I worked in community schools in Los Angeles um, for about five years. And one of the problems that I had experienced before coming to Los Angeles on school, like school improvement, I worked with some failing high schools in Milwaukee you know, I hate that term, but right, but they've been like marked in need of improvement, right? And they've been given millions of dollars to try to fix what was wrong. And one of the things that was really clear to me um, was that they weren't involving the community in, an, in a meaningful and effective way, I should say, right? So there was two big issues. One was there wasn't a cross-sector community initiative like PACE's Connection is trying to foster. So the adversity in the community wasn't changing. So students were still leaving the school and going back out and facing, you know, community violence and food insecurity and the things that were, you know, of course they bring back to school with them. So that was one big issue. The other was that when the school was looking at quote unquote, like improvement measures and improvement strategies, it wasn't asking the community what do you need? How can you be involved? How can you support us? How can, you know, how can we do this collectively? And it didn't work. And it was so frustrating, right? Because you just so much money, so much effort, so much human energy going into fixing this problem and not getting to the root cause of what was going on. So community schools to me were a solution that from the beginning, like we were talking about before the break, right? This collective visioning process. When community schools are done well, they take in, in, a, in a, they use, sometimes um, use uh, a collective impact approach. There's all sorts of different ways that you could facilitate this conversation, but really bringing in the voices of the community, including students, <clears throat> youth voice is the most powerful voice, right? We can't forget how important youth voice is and how much they know about what they need. You ask any high school kid, what do you, you know, what do you need from school? What should school look like? They have no problem telling you all the things that are, you know, going well and not going well. <laughs> um, they're the most honest, right? So youth voice, community voice, bring in your grassroots organizers, bring in your community activists, bring in your parents, bring in your cross-sector folks, your police, your mental health folks, bring in a wide variety of stakeholders that all 
absolutely are invested in the outcome of this place. They, we are all super invested in what happens, whether we have children in the system or not, in what we produce, what comes out on the other end, right? And so collectively vision together, what is our why? What's our North Star? What are we here to do? Are we here to, you know, for me, it's humanizing education, not just trauma-informed, not just healing-centered, right? But really humanizing this space so that we can foster creativity, growth, excellence, academic success, you know, emotional and social-emotional well-being, all of these things that we say we, we need. At community schools, because the other thing too is that if a community school, especially if it's embedded in a cross-sector initiative at the wider community level, then you're really looking at the root cause, right? Then you're really looking at solving the community issues that are causing adversity that are, you know, so that all the families can thrive and they're having these um, kind of trauma-informed experiences, whether they're dealing with housing or police or mental health or school or, you know, fill in the blank, right? That they are having this kind of collective experience where they're encouraged to thrive and schools can't meet the needs. I mean, this is why I burnt out so hard, right? I had a ton of need from my students. My students had, and I was playing whack-a-mole I had students living in my house. Like I was trying, I was driving them to drug treatment. I was the one, I became a doula so that I could help my students deliver babies, for goodness sake, right? Like great, but not a solution, right? I couldn't fill all the gaps myself. And I didn't know that I was young and either there was two of us and, you know, 80 of them and we both burnt out hard. And community schools, because they, create very specific partnerships. It's not just having a lot of partners, it's the right partners in your community that meet the needs of your specific school. So every single community school looks very different because they have different partners that meet the needs of their ecosystem, right? And then you have help because then it teaches it being like, okay, how do I find this kid food? How do I help this family, you know, with immigration law support? How do I, you know, they're often the ones, school social workers, school support staff, teachers, administrators are often the ones trying to solve these problems. But if in, in a community school approach, you have a collective support system, right? And you have very strategic partners that are there to help fill that gap. California just put $3 billion towards community schools in this last year in their budget. It's out, you know, the grants are have been given and awarded. And next year, I think it's 1.2 billion for the next year. The federal government, I think, is 49 billion this or million, yeah, no, 49 million this year. But he, he, the request for next year is 468 million, I think. So you can see that this approach is growing. So what you know, what what we'll be able to watch in California to see how successful this is on such a scale. It's very exciting, right? And hopefully nationally, especially with the new federal grants, um, more people will have an opportunity. And there's just more. There's a lot out there. I've written a blog about it. You can read it on Paces Connection. If you Google community schools, like you'll, you'll, it's worth going down that rabbit hole if you're really interested. But I think for me, it's the most optimistic, optimistic framework for the, for the, for the things that I see as necessary, especially that collective visioning piece. And, you know, it's a, what is the, the meme or the adage, right? Change happens at the speed of trust. We cannot force this to happen until we build collective trust because as we pointed out in our conversation, there's so many people who've been traumatized by the school system, who've been left out of the school system, who had bad experiences themselves. Parents don't often trust 
the school system. So when the school's like, come and vision with us, they're like, yeah, no, I'm good. Um, I don't trust you to hear my voice, to, to take action on what I suggest, to treat me, you know, re- respectfully or, or, you know, any of that. So I think people, schools ask me often, you know, well, where do I start? Where, where do we start with this? And if you have to start with just a year of building trust and building relationships, then that's where you start. Yeah, I think that's really is the the first step um, in, I think, in our work so far around community building, really those listening campaigns and relationship building is the first step. And obviously it takes a long time, but once it's done or once the process has begun, there's so much that can be gained. Uh, And there, and you're right, there's such a huge chasm of distrust Mm -hmm. um, for the school system from everyone, because even yes. with the this issue of critical race theory is a reflection of how, you know, conservative parents are distrustful of the school yes. system. And, yes. um, you know, there's a, a long history of um, you know, families of color being distrustful of the school system that is generational in, in scope. So, you For know, sure. there before they even enter the door, they've been told by their parents to beware of the teacher, to beware of the principal, to to not um, let their guard down and to be aware that some people are not going to like them because of their skin color. So there's so much distrust there when it comes to schools. Um, And, you know, the departure from um, kind of how the, the narrative around schools, you know, for our country, which is that, you know, we are kind of number one in education and that is not the case anymore. And this is largely due to our inability to, to have trust in our school system and definitely in our inability to um, to envision our collective selves, uh, like you said, us all getting along with each other, having mm-hmm. um, a very clear understanding that we're all in it together. And we are approaching this from two different angles, which I think is very much the issue right now. So even as we have people who are very upset about critical race theory and um wanting there to be this sense of unity that's not accurate, right? We want to just ignore our differences and kind of go for colorblindness or, you know, or we don't want to acknowledge different identities. We just want to, you know, act like these identities don't exist so that we can all be one. And then on the other end, there's this push for, you need to acknowledge my identity because of all the experiences I bring to the table really impact my school experience. And so, but each group is still striving for this, unity yes um, uh, that we that we're not able to get and yes. that school seems to to not be able to facilitate at this time as well so it's, it's an interesting dynamic that's going on in our country right now let me leave well as we get close to the end of the hour i want to share with the listeners some characteristics and, and i want matthew to jump in uh, as well, characteristics of community schools, like when they're still like, what, but what does this look like? Right. What, what do I see in a way that encompasses all the things that you just talked about? Right. So in a trauma-informed school, people feel safe physically and psychologically. That's number one. They feel like they belong regardless of your political beliefs, for your skin color, your yeah, everything, right? No matter who you are, you are your authentic self. They feel loved and feel unconditional regard. That can be hard <laughs> as a teacher, but it's super, super important. They have to have voice. So both teachers 
have to have voice. Parents have to have voice. Students have to have voice, right? Voice is huge. Everyone needs to be their authentic selves. They need to feel like their knowledge, kind of to what you were just saying, their knowledge, their experience they bring with them is validated and valued. Because we all bring, you know, we took our students... Like they were, like I said, we were in a rural area. We took our students out to the woods and a lot of them, especially the boys have been told that they were stupid and weren't going to graduate and weren't, you know, good students. Take them out to the woods to do water testing for the DNR. They were brilliant, right? Because that was using their lived experience, their knowledge, right? They felt valued. Trust, we were just talking about how important that is. And the learning is a huge part of this too. The academics need to be relevant and engaging. So another part that, again, we like to silo that this trauma-informed work is just about social-emotional supports or student wellness or student support services and mental health. It's just as much about how we're doing our teaching and learning. Our teaching and learning needs to catch up to the 21st century. It needs to be relevant, engaging, inquiry-based, project-based learning, all of these things that we know are successful, and that our discipline has to be restorative and collaborative. This is a must. We cannot continue with the same zero tolerance, punitive discipline system and expect to be trauma-informed. And joy and fun are often, like they're so important and are often left out. So those are kind of things that I look for, work towards, you know, when a school is on this journey. Matthew, do you have other stuff to add? I mean, I think it goes to the the pace of science, the P in paces, right? And we know those seven areas that were looked at by Dr. Bethel and Dr. Sege, a lot of them overlap in school, whether you felt connected in high school, whether you had two caring adults, so much opportunity happens within the doors of our school. Yes. Has to be done with intentionality. And I think it's not just the responsibility of the teachers, of the principals, of the kids, right? It's everyone. It's the community. Mm -hmm. It must be a community school. It must be welcoming. It must validate community traditions. It must do all of those things that we know the P and the pace of science uh, shows us. I mean, it is very clear that schools have a massive amount of opportunity and responsibility for healing um, in our communities. Yes, I think this conversation has really, um, really helped us to kind of put a bow on what what trauma-informed really looks like in schools. Um, And I think that it has highlighted so many of the possibilities when it comes to schools and how we can collectively work on our um, issues in our school setting. And and I think, um, Laura, what you said around, you know, this global... um, global view with local action is uh, extremely important. So, you know, everybody um, get in touch with your local (laughs) school board, support them, volunteers, volunteer your work in schools, support them financially. Uh, There's so much you can do um, for your local schools. And um, uh, this conversation has been um, really helpful and is really closing out our our month uh, as we go back to school. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Laura, for being our guest. And we will see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. And get out there and fight like hell. <laughs> I want people to be fired up.
Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.